Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Grit True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. We are almost at the end of season number three, dedicated to the Grit Talks and the best of. Today, we have another special episode. Last week, we had four stories honoring and remembering 9-11 from an open mic we did last year on 9-11. And this week, we have four more stories from that event in 2021. Now, 21 years later, a huge thanks to our storytellers who showed up then crafted and told those stories uh, that you're hearing right now. Madeline Holden in Quebec, Canada. Erin Johnston out in California. Tina McKenna up in New York. And Linda Durrett in West Virginia. Thank you, ladies. And you will be hearing their stories consecutively with no interruptions. Four straight stories, and then we're out. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including... This Sunday's Suicide Noted Storytelling Show. Now, I have another podcast called Suicide Noted where I speak with suicide attempt survivors, but now we're trying to bring those worlds together some. So this will be our first storytelling event that is dedicated to suicide attempt survivors. We have several. We'll be sharing stories. Hope you can join us. Check the show notes for a link to that. Okay, Madeline, Erin, Tina, and Linda, let's dive in. So my mom pours hot tea in our cups, places them on the table, and sits beside me in my kitchen. Is there news, I ask. She puts her head in her hands. It's the week following 9-11, the terror attacks in New York. The Ewarts are in shock, she says. It's just too horrible. Meredith and Peter just got married, just started working in New York, have their whole lives ahead of them. Maybe they'll find survivors, but I've seen the images on TV. It's unbearable to think about, my mom says, and I know it is. Buried alive, gasping for breath. It's my own recurring nightmare from my coma. When I was hit by a car at 18, everyone has a story of loss, but nothing compares to this. It's the magnitude of it, the violence. 80 countries mourning the loss of one of their own. It hits hard, close to home. Just a day's road trip due south. I go through the motions. I try to be normal. My heart just isn't in it. There's a feeling everywhere that something should be done. I should do something. I don't know what. I write a card reaching out to the Ewarts. I write a letter of support to Jennifer. Meredith's sister. I see people bumping into each other on the sidewalk, holding hands, trying to connect. I see two women in the soap aisle at the supermarket, weeping in each other's arms, holding each other up. And then the news comes through the normal channels. The Ewarts will fly down to the site. There's a possible DNA match. I wonder if Jen will go. The day of Meredith's celebration of life ceremony 
comes. I go to the church where I grew up. It's familiar, run down, crumbling, but the community shows up. The lineup starts at the door, pours out onto the sidewalk, goes all the way around the block. I sneak in the side door where there's a little ramp for my wheelchair. I can't get in. There's too many people. I listen to the service in the coat room. Over the intercom on the ceiling above my head, the air is heavy with sweat and sadness. Then later, in another room, my mom and her friends have worked their magic. Food for the masses. Little sandwiches with the crust cut off. Brownies. Lemon squares. The comforting smell of coffee. All prepared with love. And then there they are. Mr. Ewart standing in front of me, and Mrs. Ewart sitting beside me, close, her hand on my arm. I fumble for the right words and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. This is so tragic. And then upset, I say, I read everything. I want to understand, but nothing makes sense. Mr. Ewart nods his head, understands, then confides. Softly, it's the opposite for us. We had to turn everything off. We can't read the papers. It just hurts too much. Mrs. Ewart squeezes my arm and says, it doesn't really matter why. It happened anyway. She's resigned, sad, and I put my hand on hers. Years later, I'm in a similar room with many of the same people. The women of the church have worked their magic, prepared food lovingly. It's my father's funeral. The day floats by in a blur. People stand to leave. And then there they are, the Ewarts standing in front of me. Mr. Ewart searches for the right words, says, he was a good man. He will be missed. And then something astonishing happens. Since my accident, Landed me in a wheelchair. People have a hard time touching me. I'm not talking about my husband or my kids or my good friends. They crawl all over me. It's others, other people. I might get an embarrassed peck on the cheek or a pat on the shoulder. Like bad luck might be contagious. But not this time. Mrs. Ewart gets down at my level. She takes me in her arms. She pushes my head to her chest. I can feel the strength of her grip on my shoulder. I smell soap. I feel the warmth of her body on my face. I hear her heart beating in my ear. She holds on tight. And then, when she releases me, I fill my paralyzed lungs with as much air as I can. And I exhale slowly. And I feel better. And that's how it happened. Parents, Bob and Kathy Ewart, from a little town called Audubon Park in Quebec, lost their daughter, Meredith, and their son-in-law, Peter, in the terror attacks of 9-11. How a community grieved the loss of one of their own. And then later, how a woman, a mother, a survivor of devastating loss, gave me the most compassionate hug of my life.
week and 20 years ago, I was in a wilderness survival class in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, led by a man named Tom Brown Jr. And the thing I remember the most that week was building shelter out of lots of leaves and sticks. But the thing I really remember was Tom telling us that each leaf that we picked up could be something we took away from an ant, a shelter of another animal. So we had to pray and we had to ask permission. And so we did the best that we could coming from a different culture and learning these new tools. That night when I slept in that shelter, it was as if the roots came up out of the ground from the tree next to me and reached around and rocked me back and forth. And I thought that I could hear a lullaby up above as the wind whistled through the oak leaves and the pine trees nearby. And the next day, as I walked around, I felt that I had been experiencing what he had been talking about, walking with the woods instead of walking in the woods. One day, and 20 years ago, we all know what happened. And on that day, we were supposed to go out tracking in this beautiful place with lots of sand and animals and this water that I've never seen anywhere but in the Pine Barrens and trees and just sun and a couple of fluffy clouds. I have bad knees. So the two-mile walk over lumpy sand, I was allowed to go in a vehicle with the other students who also had some physical issues. And I remember Billy was filling it up with water and sandwiches. And then down the road came a huge pickup truck, bright red, and we all knew it was Tom's. And he slammed on his brakes and skidded and jumped out and screamed, Billy, Billy, turn on the radio. The towers have been hit by an airplane. And us sitting in the car, we kind of chuckled because we remembered when planes accidentally hit the Empire State Building years ago. But we turned on the radio and we were trying to figure it out. And as we drove that two miles, the second plane hit the tower. And that's when we knew it was real. And when we got there, Tom told us to find a quiet place to sit. And I watched him greet each student by touching them gently on the shoulder. And I watched them going from these exuberant, yay, I'm out in nature, I'm going to track today, to this sunken shell. And when everybody arrived, we all sat around on the sand and he told us as much as he knew. And then he said, we are here today learning the skills of the earth and there's nothing else we can do today. So let's keep doing that. And we'll inform you at lunch and at dinner. And that's how the rest of the week went. We went from nature skills to listening to the radio on the break to getting news updates from the staff, because as you know, there were no planes, so nobody could really leave. Now, on the second day, Tom didn't come in, and we didn't know why. And we were told later that Tom's brother-in-law had been one of the pilots on the second plane. And that made it even more real for the class. But on the third day, Tom came in, and we're all like, why are you here? You should be at home with your family. And he told us that his wife said, I have my family here. I have my relatives here. But you have students from all over the world. So you go and you be with them. At night, some of us would go into the middle of the camp where there had been cleared out a fire pit and way back a circle of where the trees were. 
And some would pray and some would meditate and some would just sit against the tree looking up at the stars. The week went like that. News, calmness of nature. And for being in such a traumatic event, I have to say it was one of the most nurturing, compassionate, and healing weeks I have ever experienced in my life. But I did have to go home when the class was over. And that's when I felt the wall of grief. And on my first day back at work in a nursing home, I was working north of the city, north of Terrytown. I walked in and everyone was in the activity room staring at the television. There were windows of glass on the wall on two sides. And I walked over and I just looked out at the Hudson River and New Jersey on the other side. And I gave thanks for what I was able to experience that week. It has stayed with me that whenever I'm in stress, whenever I'm uncertain about the world, I find a place in nature. And if I live in a city, that's where I look for the dandelions coming up through the cracks of the pavement. Well, kind of like everyone else, when the first plane hit, I just thought, this guy is so stupid. How could he miss this big building? But by the time the second one hit, I knew we were in trouble. And I felt very alone because my husband was out for several months in Salt Lake City. I called him. I woke him up and I said, turn on the TV. So he turned on the TV. It was only in Spanish. But he could tell by the images of what was happening. So I, I let him go back to sleep. And then I waited for my family in California. And I called my mother and I said, uh, Mom, I want to let you know I'm okay. Because I used to work down there. I worked down there a lot. She said, oh, yeah, okay. And she said, but did you see that special on uh, Liz Taylor and Michael Jackson last night? And I said, Mom, the world is exploding. And she said, I know that. But you really should catch it the next time it comes on. So then I uh, I called my older brother, Ross. I said, you know, Ross, I just want to let you know I'm okay. And he says, uh, oh, yeah, fine. But listen, it's our anniversary today. So we've got people coming over. So I, I can't talk right now. So then I started calling my friends that uh, worked in that area. And the first one was Jude Mitchard. And uh, they, they worked in different companies. And I got a hold of Richard and he said he had called Jude and said, wait there and uh, I'll come and pick you up. He comes into her office and he said she looked like a statue just covered in gray dust and just staring at her computer screen. They went home. They went across the bridge to Brooklyn. They picked up their daughter, Anna Claire, at her school. And she had seen the whole thing from the other side. And Anna Claire was very concerned. She was concerned that they wouldn't be able to have pizza that night. So then I, I called my friend, John and Caitlin, and they worked in Deutsche Bank. And we had all worked there for a lot of years. They had evacuated, were evacuating down the stairs, and Caitlin had to go to the bathroom. So she pushed aside one of the doors, and she couldn't get in. And she saw through the crack that there was an airplane wing that had come through the door. Now, because I was by myself, I spent the last several months after that in sleeping in the tub. And I had blankets and towels, uh, flashlight, batteries, one of those crank up emergency radios. 
and a whistle just in case I was buried in rubble. And then I had lined up 10 plastic jugs of water. When we sold the co-op in uh, 2019, 18 years later, I finally emptied out those 10 jugs of water. But this is not a story about me. It's not a story about June Richard or John and Caitlin. It's a story about our next door neighbors, Tanya and Sergio. They lived in the co-op next to us, and we had been friends for about six years. Sergio had finally proposed to Tanya that summer, and Tanya was ready, getting there, uh, ready for their wedding. She owned a, a shop called, a gift shop, it was called Inner Peace that Sergio had bought her. And everything in it was purple and gold, and she sold, you know, greeting cards and gifts and candles and everything beautiful, because just like her and Sergio, who were impossibly gorgeous, Sergio had the biggest smile you've ever seen. And he had been born on the 4th of July in Argentina, and when he was a child, his parents had brought him to Jackson Heights, Queens. And he had three big loves. One, of course, was Tanya. The second was uh, soccer or football. All the kids on our uh, neighborhood league called him Big Daddy. And his third great love was being a New York City fireman. And on the morning of September 11th, he climbed onto the back of his fire truck with five of his fellow firefighters of ladder number 132. They drove across Brooklyn Bridge. They went up into the towers and they never came down again. Tanya had a really, really hard time dealing with it. And when I would be on my way to work or coming home at night, she would be sitting on the stoop waiting for Sergio to come home. She always had a, a candle from Inner Peace, her store, in their bedroom window. It was always lit. And then one day I came home and the stoop was empty, but the candle was still lit just in case. Eventually, Tanya rallied and uh, she did all these reckless things. She became a skydiver and she would parachute out holding this picture of Sergio with that big grin of his. And she uh, bought a motorcycle and she took a road trip with her girlfriends uh, down the coast of Florida uh, to Miami, which is where she was from. And it's also where she had met Sergio. And one day she uh, pulled into the 7-Eleven to get gas. And there was a young man there. His name was Ray Tepper. He had been pulled over by the police because he had souped up his Harley, you know, make a lot of noise and they were giving him a ticket. So they exchanged glances. They exchanged numbers. He called her. They began dating and they got married. And then they had a little girl. Shortly thereafter, they found out that she had Asperger's. And the next year, they had another little girl, and she had Asperger's as well. And Tanya was like, God, haven't I given enough? But because it was Tanya, she just girded her loins, and she started a group for uh, children, parents with children that were on the autism spectrum. And she also started a group called Camp Widow. It was for all widows, you know, it wasn't just for 911. And she now lectures all over the country. She does TED Talks. Across her website, she has just one sentence. I will always grieve, but that doesn't mean that I can't live a life filled with joy. So 
Tanya is a phoenix who rose out of the ashes, and the candle has gone out, but she found her inner peace, and she now is living a life filled with joy. thousand miles. I'm far from home. We left Salt Lake City traveling through the Rocky Mountains and then on into Wyoming, stopped at an Oregon Trail monument on a high plain. The winds were blowing and shrieking. I felt their pain. Two days before on 9-11, I was excited to be in Utah. I was at a national convention. I got up early, turned on the TV, ready to go down to the trade show floor. Brushing my teeth, the reporter said, a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. I slumped on the bed, horrified. Then another plane crashed into the second tower. This was no coincidence. I sat there and shook my head. This was on purpose. Someone somewhere was attacking us. Then the Pentagon was hit. A huge wound scorched its flank. Then, damn it, another plane crashed into the rolling Pennsylvania hills. This was an orchestrated evil attack. Thousands dead, thousands injured, families, friends, co-workers dead, hurt, maimed, grieving, dead. I thought about the hotel gift shop and a beautiful sapphire and diamond bracelet I had spied there. I intended to buy it, and I was going to celebrate my birthday on September 16th. How utterly selfish I now felt. 3,000 souls lost. They would never celebrate another birthday. Hundreds of thousands. They would never lay their eyes on these loved ones ever again. I would be lucky to make it home to North Carolina for my birthday in three days. My home was my refuge, my place of safety. I was on my journey there. Dan, the vice president of the company I worked for, and I finally got a rental car. Since all the flights had been canceled, This was our only ticket home. We had a route planned, but no food stash. We had three days to cross the USA. I was going home. Once we got through Wyoming, we went south on another interstate. On down to Denver, Colorado, we found two hotel rooms. The next morning, we loaded up. The maid stopped us in the hall. She handed us pillows and blankets and towels. She said, don't tell on her. But she knew we might not be able to find a room that night. We might need this stuff. Dan was an ex-Air Force pilot and had flown secret spy missions over Russia. We listened to NPR for hours, humming along to the occasional songs, listening to the news. When the news came on, he would tell me what his military background and experience would say. This is the real backstory. I listened intently. I was thinking, great spirit, I was on my way home. So little traffic, even on all the major interstates. Kansas is a very, very long way from home. Hundreds of miles. Millions of acres of September corn, golden sunflowers. They all nodded in unison. Go east, go home. I felt calmer now, and I said, we are probably in the safest place in the whole USA, right here in this desolate Midwest, no planes, no traffic. 
no towns, not a thing, nothing, just cows and sunflowers. No reason for terrorists to attack these peaceful plains. Dan cleared his throat and softly said, Linda, this is probably the most dangerous part of our trip home. We are surrounded by nuclear missile silos. This is ground zero if our country is really under attack. I heaved. Hot tears dripped across my cheeks. I just wanted to go home. I wanted to go home. I wanted to be safe. That damn bracelet and I were not a match. I wanted calm, serenity, peace. The outpouring of love and concern continued. We stopped in St. Louis. That night, a desk clerk opened up all the vending machines and told us, take whatever you want. Take whatever you need. You might not find food for a while. They knew we were on our way home. The hotel staff, they actually stood in the lobby in the entrance ramp. Every time a guest departed, they cheered every guest, praying for our safety. Dan rented a second car. We were going to split. He was going to head to Birmingham, Alabama. Then I was going to travel east. I was going to go home. 800 miles across Tennessee, 600 North Carolina miles. Dan handed me the rental car keys, hugged me and kissed my cheek. He said, Linda, I'm going home to a very sad place. My wife and I are getting a divorce. I bought something for her, but it wasn't meant to be. He handed me a box. I opened it. The bracelet I coveted, but thought it best that I should leave it behind. He slipped it on my wrist. You and I have seen the worst and the best of humanity in three days. Please accept this gift from me. I made it home for my birthday on September 16. I've worn this gift of love and friendship every September 11 for the last 20 years. I am home. I am safe. I live in a country of great love. I remember. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to our storytellers, Madeline, Erin, Tina, and Linda. Thank you, ladies, for crafting and telling these stories. Last year, for our 20-year uh, honoring and remembering of 9-11. If you're hearing this before 9-11 of this year, 2022, we have an event we'd love for you to attend, participate, support, it's called Suicide Noted, the same name as my other podcast. And this time we're bringing together the worlds of personal narrative story and suicide attempt survivors for our first curated storytelling show around suicide attempt survivors. They will be sharing their stories or one of them. We'd love to see you there. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And that is all for episode number 99. Wait for it. Boom.